0: Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to
1: emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hello listeners, happy Halloween, and welcome to a rare horror movie conversation here on the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Aaron, and thankfully still here with me after I made him watch this movie. Is my best friend <laughs> co-host Patch. Well, I am glad that I had a tape
0: measure nearby because apparently that was uh, a <laughs> key ingredient for this for this movie to keep one person in particular safe for at least a minute. So, with my tape measure fully in my hand,
1: I was uh, I was comfortable and enjoyed the movie. <laughs> Outstanding. Well, this is Zach Kreger's directorial debut, and it was a big one. It garnered him a lot of critical praise for the original story and the unique film style or structure, and it achieved what I would consider to be one of the coolest accolades that a movie can have, which is when people recommend it by word of mouth and when people say, you gotta go see this without knowing anything about it. To me, that's a sure sign that some fun and exciting and unexpected things are about to occur, and Barbarian certainly has those in spades. So with that said, this is your spoiler warning. We are going to talk about it in depth, and we really do recommend that you get out there, you watch it for yourself first, you don't read anything about it, you don't listen to anybody about it, just go spend an hour and a half fire it up on HBO Max, and see what it's about for yourself. Then you can hear us go through our reactions and and talk about what we think. Well, Patrick, before we talk too much plot here, I wanted to start with something kind of tangential to the movie's story here. And and that is, what is your experience with Airbnb rentals? Have you ever used one? I
0: have, actually. We went to a little town outside of Branson a couple of summers ago. Our family did for just a few days just to kind of get away. I think it was I think it was during the pandemic. Uh so it was twenty twenty, yeah. So we decided to just book and there are a couple of different websites. There's Airbnb, you know, the brand that has now become sort of uh ubiquitous for any kind of rental. I think there's VRBO, which is another one that we actually went through. But uh but yeah, we rented A little kind of condominium Airbnb apartment from this lady who had two or three rental properties in the same area. And the facility, the place where we were, is kind of a retirement complex of uh, condominiums and townhouses and things like that. So it was the first time uh, I was considering doing it again this past summer, but we ended up not traveling. But uh, I I had a great experience. It was very that that lady, I actually called her and she answered the phone. So that was a plus already in light of what we saw in this movie. And I was not double booked, which is another plus. So my Airbnb experience, the one that I had was uh, was really good.
1: Yeah. So you're, you're right about the multiple versions. I had not heard of anything other than Airbnb before this movie. The one that you mentioned, the the VRBO, v- and then the one that is in the movie called home Away, that's an actual thing as well, I discovered. So that's the name of another vacation home rental service that operates exactly the same as Airbnb. I've used it once or twice. I can't remember for sure. I do remember one very vivid, specific occurrence when I was going to Portland on my way to pick up my dog, actually. It was with the kids, and we were heading down south into Oregon, and we were gonna pick up Gimli the next morning. And we wanted to stay somewhere in downtown Portland that was close to Voodoo Donuts, because that was our goal, was to get Voodoo Donuts in the morning and then head out. This was like a very important plan. And that led me to this Airbnb that was apparently like some sort of apartment space over a downtown building. And it was a crazy, crazy thing. There was like this little delicatessen underneath us, and it was in a very what I would consider not the best part of town. It was dirty, a lot of homeless folks around, a lot of noise, a lot of racket, and just just kind of a, a very kind of disturbing vibe and there was not a lot of peace that night when we were sleeping you know the the door had like four locks on it which was a terrible thing to like walk into wow. right when you're like <laughs> this thing has like four deadbolts i was like this is not good and and it was really weird you you call and then you could go downstairs to the delicatessen which i guess those people owned this basically bedroom apartment that was on top of their their store or whatever. It was wild. So it, it was, it worked. <laughs> like it was a successful venture as well for us. And I, I just thought that, you know, having done it before, it really did make this movie hit home because there is an element of kind of, I don't know, reluctance, if that's the right word, when you walk into someone else's home versus when you're walking into a hotel room. You just right. have a different feel about it. And even if nothing is weird and nothing goes wrong, of course.
0: Yeah, but I think, I think, depending, and it may just be a mentality that we had and that I try to have is that I assume that nobody lives there, that this is just a rental property that they're using as an Airbnb. So when you have a rental property, you have long term folks. I will probably be, I'm probably lying to myself in all honesty. But I mean, if we think about it, You're staying in a hotel room where weird things could have happened two days prior and things will probably happen two days after. And I don't think any amount of clean sheets are going to change that mentality. So (laughs) the less you ask, I think the better. And for us, I think the security was that the person we were renting from the great thing about some of these places is they, if they have other properties, they list those as well. And you see the areas they're in, you see what it's around. And so there's a lot of kind of what you call digital curb appeal to some of these places. I would never in my life I was about go to, say. to a place <laughs> in Detroit out of the curb desperation. Not no, there. No, and no. For- and here's the thing. I'm watching this movie and I'm trying to figure out. Because I, I go into it at much like most people should, with really no premise, no understanding. This this reminded me, when you recommended this to me a couple of days before, I was only thinking about one cut of the dead. And I was like, that was an amazing movie experience. So I fully trust you, and I'm willing to deal with the gore and the, the horror. I, I mean, the saggy boobs, I think, were the worst thing about this for me. So I think you've got such a great kind of premise here. And so I was looking for little things. So for instance, and I don't want to get into it quite, you know, I'm going to follow your lead on this, but you know, when she goes into the house and she goes to the bathroom and she comes back and she looks around and I thought something in my head was like, what did the, did the room change? Is it a different kind of room? What's, what's the deal with this house? And I was kind of making up things like, so I rewound it just to make sure, okay, okay, it's the same room, so that's not the thing that it changes all the time. Although that'd be kinda of cool. Yeah, you know, what is it about this house that's kind of kind of crazy? But I I don't think about that in my Airbnb experience. I think, okay, yeah, this is a cool place. I don't expect things to change. However, if we do an Airbnb, or at least if I do one by myself, if I'm traveling somewhere, I'm probably gonna have those thoughts. So thanks a lot for that.
1: Yeah, I'm not going down the basement for toilet paper. I'm just gonna deal. I'm leaving it's, the
0: house. I, I am leaving that. the house. <laughs> Leave the house. You have keys, you have a car, just leave. There were 15 times in this movie I was like, no. When did you get a conscience and say, let's rescue this guy? No, go.
1: (laughs) Save yourselves. Save yourselves. Anyway, yeah. That's the common horror movie thing. Well, I want to talk about it in parts as much as we can. I want to start with the section, the first section, because the movie very distinctly is shot in three separate kind of ways two of which overlap each other but the first one everything from tess pulling up in the middle of the night to this airbnb at 476 barbary street up until the housemates gruesome shocking murder and reveal of this monster mama living downstairs in this darkened dungeoned basement area that's all one Kind of self contained story. And for me, that whole section felt it it wasn't a horror movie, it was a thriller. And I was completely riveted. And I would say, even having watched it twice now, like that first section for me is like a five star movie if that was the movie. Because I thought that Kreger does an incredible job of crafting these two characters and showing us. One, Keith, played by Bill Skarsgård, who I believe was very intentionally cast because he is a handsome and charming looking man, but we know him from some horror stuff. Yes, his eyes from playing it. So like Mm -hmm. there's an easy like place, easy way for our brains to immediately kind of become suspicious of him, which is what the movie is trying to play with. And then. I also love just how much he makes Tess all about the details, things that you were kind of mentioning because of the way that it's shot. It made you wonder, like, is something changing? But what he was trying to do is give you her POV that she is really taking care. She doesn't just walk right in. She questions everything. She won't drink the tea. She... Doesn't she wants to see his license like she wants to confirm all these things. She's very kind of she blocks the doors behind her when she goes in the bathroom, when she goes in the bedroom for a few moments. So she does the things that I think in most horror movies people wouldn't do. And I loved that so much because I thought that just the tension between the two of them and the acting and the whole setup of what do you do in this situation was so brilliant. And for me, and, and I will say first, I don't know where I land fully. I don't know if I would have walked away. And I like that at one point, Keith actually challenges her with that. And he says, he's like, well, what would you have done if the situation was reversed? Right. And you were in here and she's like, I wouldn't answer the door. Like, sorry, you're not coming in. Like, what And he's like, well, okay, <laughs> that's kind of rude. But I mean, there's some truth to that, like because this is playing on the gender roles and, and things of that nature as well. And d- did you like this particular section of the movie? I really did.
0: And there were a lot of things that felt a little bit like Cabin in the Woods, you know, challenging some of the tropes that existed. The one line that I think stands out for a lot of people, well myself specifically, I can't speak for everybody, but the word nope, you know, not to go off of uh, you know, a, a recent movie that that came out. But that speaks to what most of an most audiences would say. Nope, I'm not doing that. And yet she ends up doing it because of the fact that she's stuck. The fact that curiosity is going to overtake, potentially, at some point. And I'm and I'm putting myself what what the movie does is it allows me to put myself in that situation in a very realistic way. Within this confines of this weird place that she's in. I would probably do the same thing. I would be curious. And at some point I was like why are you rummaging through his stuff? Well, you kind of have to because he's not giving you much to work with. I love how Scarsgard delivers his lines of real like anxiousness and real insecurity. It's like he knows that she knows that this is a weird situation. And that when he does the whole thing with the tea and she doesn't drink it, he picks up on that. The whole bit with the wine, he said I was going to open it, but then I knew and he just he, he kind of fumbles through his sentences. And which doesn't a, help. It doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't help. No, though. it absolutely doesn't. <laughs> but I I am sympathetic towards him because he knows what this looks like. And I was honestly this first third I was grabbed from the moment that the light turned on. And so she goes in, she tries to do the key, uh she misses the the path, the, the key code and then all of a sudden, you know, she apparently she knocks or she fumbles around enough to make noise. And then there's like this light that comes on and I'm like, oh my gosh, who's there? Can he see her? Who is it? And then he comes to the door half asleep. This whole bit between him and her up to the point when she goes to sleep is such a slow burn of realistic tension because you have thriller and horror elements. They're not turned on their head in a way that Cabin in the Woods does as like sort of commentary, but they're challenged in that. I think what Craigor does is he allows these actors to sort of play in the moment. There's not a lot of – I almost felt like the dialogue was ad-libbed. Like he said, okay, here's the situation. I want you guys to kind of go back and forth. Now, obviously, the script did take hold because of when she starts talking about the documentary and where he is and setting her at ease. But you know at any given point – he may do something because he's one, a guy, two, he was formerly Pennywise the Clown. He also has the same character or a similar character in the uh the Hulu series Castle Rock, which is loosely it's based on, you know, this you know, it's set in the world of all these stories that Stephen King has written, and he's got this sort of half sympathetic, half creepy look. And you're right, it's the eyes. scarsguard's eyes, I think, could make you go do I trust him? Do I not? And he never gave any any indication outside in the actions that he took that he was in any way trying to manipulate her. And I think that speaks to just how he looks and his acting ability and how he can deliver a line of dialogue. And so seeing them together I love the fact that the movie itself challenges nighttime being the scary time because even in the day, that's when she gets stuck in the basement. And I'm like, oh my gosh, don't go down that tunnel. The tunnel's dark, yes. And all these little little elements that play into it, like, it gets you asking, what happened here? What's going on? And I, I mean that's just it's a great movie. It's a it's a great movie formula for any kind of scary movie. What happened here? What is this all about? And so, yes, I absolutely agree that this section itself is definitely five-star horror thriller material because of the potential that it sets up uh, later in the movie. Does it pay itself off? We'll get there. But I think that for the most part, the characters in this leading up to that jump scare of Mama, and I'm like, wow, like that in itself could have almost been like an episode of like the Twilight Zone of or. And I think that's what makes it great and why it feels like such a jarring jump to the next section and why this feels like it's, oh, it's like not three separate movies, but they're like tonally all over the place. The question we ask ourselves is how do they work together? Because it's still a cohesive story. And I was reminded a lot of um, Full Metal Jacket and how it has Mm -hmm. seemingly two distinct parts, but... As Matthew Modine would tell you in our interview, it's not. It's all seamless. It, it, well, it's not seamless, but it all works together with an underlying theme. And so I think if I when I w- I will probably watch this again for just knowing where all the jump scares are, because, you know, for me, it's like, <laughs> when, when is it going to happen? Going through it the second time, I'm going to look for some of those threads throughout the movie to see kind of how it all ties itself together.
1: Yeah, that's a great observation to have is that you want to observe things closer, I guess. Yeah, Um, yeah, I I got to do that, you know, because I saw it once in the theater, completely no idea. I just saw some other critics that saw us before us here in Seattle who were raving about it. I was like, all right, you know, I don't give a lot of horror movies a chance. Honestly, I'm very, very picky and specific about them. But I said, okay, I heard that it's kind of got a vibe a little bit like malignant and it does. And so I gave it that shot and I really enjoyed having that communal, just what the heck is happening experience. And then when I went up to play board games with my family yesterday and we were going to decide to watch a movie, I was like, we got to do this because they have a home theater that they built with a huge projector and theater seats. And so we all gathered in there and I just sat there and observed them watching it. And it was a joy because they were being in almost like your own version of a, of a theater at home. They were talking through their feelings as it was going. And I was just giggling the whole time, right? They were like, no, the code, this and this. And oh my God, don't do that. And then early on in the very first section, uh, one of my friends, he said something about w- when she discovers the basement, his first thought, he said, wow, you know, there's some more square footage there. And I, I was just holding my tongue because I was like, that's going to come up later. You know, like he's going to just wait. But um, but all those details I got to really pay attention to. And it's fascinating because I mentioned all of the ways in which during that initial interaction, she's so careful. And then she lets her guard down. They start to kind of like each other a little bit. There's this moment where you think, uh oh, is he going to stay in the room? Is he going to go out of the room and nothing happens. Everybody's smart about this and doesn't like push it next day comes. She's a little late. He's sweet. He leaves a note for her again, just slightly enough on the creepy scale when he leaves that note, because he ends it with something like, gosh, I can't remember what he said. It was good
0: luck today. Yeah.
1: Or I enjoyed last night.
0: I enjoyed last
1: enjoyed last night. That was the PS part that I was like, yeah, it was kind of like when he, he's talking and he says something really normal. And then he's like, you have a beautiful name, by the way. And I was like, no, that was the part. You didn't have to say that, you know, like <laughs> like you're you're yeah. making these things worse on yourself. So, so I, he always he they continue to give you these little bits that make you kind of are you are you 100% sure. But she goes out and when she comes back, man, this is when it starts to turn. So when she's coming home from the interview, you have the old guy from down at the water tower running to her. And I love, there's so many shots in this movie that I love Patrick, just from a a filmmaking standpoint, like when she walks in the door and the camera covers her from like a, like a parallel move Mm -hmm. over the, through the door frame where she like disappears. I love that. I love the ones you're talking about where it kind of makes you wonder, does something change? And I love this one where she is facing the door and in the background blurred out we can see this very faint little form and it looks like it's slowly getting closer and closer and closer and as he comes into focus he's just screaming hey little girl you come out of that house hey little girl and it's like what of course what would you do you would run in the house and hide right yeah that's terrifying And it plays with that because obviously Mm -hmm. he's trying to help her, but he's doing so again in a way that she is perceiving. Yes. In a dangerous way.
0: Yeah. Perception is such a big deal in this first part of the movie. The way she looks at things. And I think you're right. The way it's shot gives us her genuine perspective of the danger of it. So the movie starts with this pouring down rain. There's nothing worse than. A dark and stormy night. I mean, that's how all old school horror stories start. It was a dark and stormy night. Yes, it was. And I forgot the code. And then when I got the code, there was no key in it. And that. And I'm I'm wondering at some point is she going to get stabbed on the porch? What's happening here? So by the time we get to that second to that day, this is again. This is where the challenges of perception come in. This is daytime. I would expect this dude to be running to her at night. And the fact that it's like. What noon or two o'clock in the afternoon, and this guy's running. the fact that you can create tension at that time of the day, I think is fantastic. The fact that the house is quiet makes it more intense, and all those things work together to create that build up to the basement and We've seen that trope where the door closes and locks. And so she just says, nope, I'm putting a chair there. I'm not going to have that. And I'm, I'm asking myself this whole time, like, all right, if I get into a situation like this, it will never happen, by the way. I'm going to always be around people. I'm never going to be alone again. But if I ever get into my situation, I'm going to have a backup set of keys. I'm going to have a garage door open. I'm going to have multiple ways in which I can get out. I'm going to have a door slightly cracked if I go to an Airbnb. First thing I'm going to do is crack a window. So that way, in case I get locked out or locked in, all those things are so great. And seeing how she navigates that, I find it difficult, but not unrealistic in how she gains, I guess, confidence to start exploring. Because at some point, I think curiosity does take over. When she hits that basement section and she says, nope, well, what are you going to do? And then when she finally goes there, it's, I think, because I would never do that or I don't think I would never do that, that in itself is a challenge. Would I do that? Would I gain that confidence to go one step further that would take me one step further and one step further? And I don't know if I would.
1: I I don't either. I think what it is, though, is it's it's a slow gaining of that confidence. It, it's not all yeah. at once. And I think that's what makes it so fascinating to us to watch it and to think of it as kind of like playing with horror tropes, because, yes, she says the nope. that that's just probably that's a funny thing, because we're all like saying nope out loud or under our breath as this is happening. But for her to go back, she doesn't go back blindly and stupidly. It's actually right. incredibly innovative. Like I was like, "Oh my god, that is brilliant." She's like, "Okay, we're going to take our time. We're going to set up a mirror. We're going to like look down the hall and then we're going to kind of go very, very slowly. And then when she gets in there and she sees these things, she is completely freaked out. And you juxtapose that here in a little bit with what the next character does when he when he explores the basement and it just becomes really funny. But it is not an immediate thing where she's just like, I'm going to go explore because the movie says I have to go explore. It is, does feel like she builds upon this genuine curiosity and she does it safely. And it's not until she hears Keith's screaming or calling out lightly at first that she starts to venture into the deeper, darker areas, which at that point it becomes, I think more about her morality. And I want to talk about that. A little bit later, and how that shows up in a couple different places. So, when we get into this, she goes down this hallway, and it is just, it's, it's so well designed because it's just like layer upon layer of creepy, and it just gets worse and worse. And you're like, when it opens up, Patrick, and you see the stone arch going down, that's when I was like, nah. The rest is yeah. nah, but this is extra nay like uh-uh not i'm not going down like i was on a level at one point like I, with a light behind you by the way with, with a light you should you go still down see that the stair fans. yeah yeah
0: yeah this is mm-hmm. nathan drake stuff right here we're not we're not going you know we're exploring tunnels now no 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 i'm staying level where i can see a, a light that i can run back to and bu- if i have to bust a mirror to get there i'll do it you know there's no exactly there's no the map is over now we're in the underworld. Exactly.
1: yeah agreed. agree well it that's a great way to put it is it's kind of like you're descending into hell in a situation. Exactly. Where, nothing good happens underground like no, that. I've no. never seen a movie where it's like, hey, our wonderful, flourishing, happy, colorful society is living down here under the ground <laughs> where yeah. it's no, 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 peace no. and safe and quiet and healthy. Like, <laughs> no, that's not how it works. <laughs> anyway, it's not where the Care Bears are. They're in the freaking sky. Yeah, so you're going down this and she's following the voice. How did you react to this moment when he comes know. clawing out of the darkness? And
0: oh, it was just like, what's
1: happening here? Did you think he was faking it? Because the people I was yes, watching it with yes, were like, don't listen to him. He's faking it. He's trying to suck you down there. Yeah, because she
0: says, she says, do you see it? And he goes, yeah. And that's the last thing we see that we hear of coherence. And then she goes down and then... This is another cool thing that that he does, uh, that um, that Krager uh, does, is he creates faintness in this movie. He creates faintness in the screaming, like it's not clear what he's screaming. I mean, it's it's just like a slightly, like, ah. but it's it's because it's, it creates this distance, and so it creates a false for an audience. It creates this false sense of. Okay, it's far enough away, we can get a little bit closer, we can explore, and then we see him come out where he's been just mauled to death, or before he's getting mauled. And the same thing can be said later on in the movie, this was the creepiest thing for me, is I think it was AJ who looks back and he sees Mama, and there's like this faintness where it looks like she's coming at him, and then she disappears. And I'm like is she a ghost? Okay. Are we adding some paranormal stuff going on here? I don't know. That stuff is really great because for an audience looking at this as a spectating point of view, it adds that layer of a jump scare. That's not, that's unconventional. We see distance, but we know, boom, it could happen. So the use of light and darkness, the flickering of lights where you see mama in the distance. And the next thing you see is her face right in front of you. Once the light comes back on, oh my gosh, another jump scare. It was really great but i think here when we watch how he's screaming i thought i thought he's in on it and and i thought frankly until the moment where he got his head bashed in that he was in on whatever was down there and so i thought he set up the camera he set up the the bed and the bucket and the fact that he, <laughs> he disappears <laughs> it's like what's he going to do but yeah that was my initial thought was that he was luring her down uh, but I'm asking myself, why in the world would you keep going? Like you saw the bucket in the bed. Why did you not come back upstairs and say, Yes, it's creepy. Let's go grab a coffee ten thousand miles from here. But instead he found the tunnel and he decided to go exploring because it's Bill Skarsgard and he has no fear.
1: Yeah, I would agree. I that if there's any like plot holes at all, it's that where does that happen, right? At what point is he taken and quietly taken? Like he, he doesn't scream because she's at the top of the stairs. You would think that if he was anywhere near that first room when he gets captured that like you would assume a yelp of some kind. But he does quietly So as I think you kind of have to just assume he probably saw that it kept going and started going down the hall to explore himself just kind of similarly. And that's when he disappeared. But yeah, it it is so sudden and it's one of only... I think two major gory moments in the whole movie yeah. that, and then ultimately the the final kill in the movie. Um, and boy, is it visceral and it just is. I mean, it's, <laughs> I, but I love that because it is not in your face over and over and over. It built, it's built up to, and it is a true shocking one timer of a thing. And then of course it's kind of, Lightened immediately because the movie jump cuts, and all of a sudden it's the California coast. It's a nice, beautiful, sunny day, and Justin Long is jamming out to Ricky Tiki Tavi, driving down the street. <laughs> and what was going through your head in this moment? How is this connected at all? Are we <laughs>
0: are we telling a different story? Like the first thing I thought is how is this going to connect to what we just saw? Because okay. unless I mean, unless Kreger is an idiot, which he's not, because direct no director is an idiot. They have purpose, even if it's to just show you fun stuff, there are connecting pieces. So my first question is, how does AJ connect back? And we got that quick I mean, we got that pretty quickly. He owns the rental house in in Detroit. What I didn't expect was what happened after that. And I thought because I got the hint from you that, hey, it turns into somewhat of a comedy. And I'm like, oh, is this going to go one cut of the dead? Are we getting into a little bit of uh, <laughs> some campiness here? What's going to happen? But that was my initial question is, how does he fit? And when the conversation led into him talking about sexual assault, potentially raping this girl, I'm like, wait, wait are we are we telling a different story now? And is this in the future? Is this in the past? I mean – that's the only explanation at that point that I could give it is like this must be happening later or earlier than this other event because if you're going to tie it together this feels really abrupt in terms of subject matter and character to allow you to say this isn't happening at the same time or maybe it is but how do you connect the dots
1: Yeah I agree and it it took me a bit after seeing the movie honestly before I really kind of put everything together as to Why AJ was written the way he was, and what was the real like? Was this just an invented reason for his character to get like a plot device to get him to Detroit to have a reason for a guy to own a a place? I think it comes into focus more towards the end of the movie why specifically he is the way he is, and I think that the movie is asking us to sort of think about the way that we perceive things, like we talked about and what choices we might make based on the information we have, even if we don't know that we, even if we don't know everything and have all the information. Right. And so it's brilliant to me because we know as an audience that this is a dirtbag. Like he very quickly establishes himself as someone who clearly committed this sexual assault. He basically admits it. and He, the most, I, just got disgusted the moment. He's like, Oh, what was he saying with his friend? And he's like, she just took some convincing man. Like, I mean, that was like, but she came around and I'm like, are you like, Uh, are you serious? And then when she said
0: yes, she really said yes. uh, But then she was into it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then he calls her and apologizes. And it's just, it's so gross because it is, it's very indicative at first. It plays it like, okay, this is just going to be another example of, Cancel culture, right, and maybe or maybe not this guy did it, but he's losing his entire life because of nothing but an accusation but as it goes on, you see behind the scenes that he he very much is the kind of person who does things like this and should be held accountable for it. He continues to establish his douchebaggery. I don't know that there's a better word to describe him because he is just such a terrible awful human i mean it's a great performance. I think Justin Long is an awesome actor, very good comedic actor, and I, I really hated him. Like I, I just very actively was not enjoying him in a way, but I credit that to the performance because he is supposed to feel like this to the audience. You are supposed to look at him and just come, like do nothing but shake your head with like, anger, disgust. So he gets to yeah. the house and. I mean, he gets in there. He calls the person, and I love that the girl hangs up on him. By the way, when she's like, "I'm not. I'm not. Basically, not going to listen to you," you know. <laughs> and he gets down there, and what does he do? You mentioned this in the in the intro. His first thought is money. I need money to help get myself through this situation that I'm being accused. These allegations, and here's a situation where I might be able to leverage this in my favor. And he is completely oblivious to the his perception, his level of observation is like so tunneled into the possibility of money. And he starts to freaking measure this creepy, <laughs> dirty, just bloody dungeon. So I lost it. I, I, I was, there's no words to express how confused I was in this moment and why anyone would act like this And it was just it was so mind boggling to me. But do you think that he was written that way as in a realistic manner? Or is he is he more there for comedic relief at that point?
0: No, I think there's a sense of remorse or lack of remorse that we wanted to get from him where he really didn't. He was very calloused as a character. So from the very beginning, he's happily singing to Ricky Tiki Tabby. And then he starts getting accused and he goes on the defensive. I never did that. I never, I, she, You know, that lying, you know, whatever. And from that moment, the more that he denies, the more that he denies, which is what we hear a lot in our culture, the denial of those things, they usually turn out to be true. Like, why would a woman, and I'm speaking just sort of generalized, why would a woman accuse a man of rape if it didn't happen? Now, there are examples of that that have. But the narrative has generally been, if the woman is accusatory, then there's probably an element of truth that lives in that. I'm glad we didn't go too deep into that because that would have deviated from the story that we're being told. But I think what he does, his actions, we never hear from her. We never get that side of the story. We get even just from voices. We don't even get to see his agent or whoever it is he's talking to, the HR rep. We just hear voices and we see How aggressive he is towards them. And so it sets up this personality type, which I think is really interesting because we talk about perceptions. Justin Long is a nice guy. Justin Long's characters have always been, generally speaking, the hey guy next door and the one who you wouldn't expect. It's so great to see this opposite Bill Skarsgard, who we would expect to be the bad guy, and he's actually the victim. He's actually the one that's been trying and he finds this girl attractive. He thinks that, hey, at the very least when all this craziness is over with the mix up with the Airbnb, maybe they're gonna maybe they're gonna hang out again. Maybe they'll stay in touch. That's what I perceived before he gets his comeuppance, uh, unjustifiably. But then you have AJ, who is cast, I think, in the same kind of way that Skarsgard was, to create this idea that the nice guy really isn't nice and the, the bad guy really isn't bad. So I think there was some value and some real intent in how his backstory was set up to get to this point it wasn't just a cheap sense of agency that hey he needed money the fact that he is looking at his house as an opportunity to say oh cool i can measure square footage what i thought aaron if we're going to get into the when you mentioned the word comedy i thought oh he's going to run into mama and he's gonna be like listen can you back off a little bit i need i need to measure Like, he's going to just flippantly (laughs) kind of say, get out of my house. I don't care if you're nursing. Get your naked boots. (laughs) Yeah. That's what I thought was going to happen. And I'm glad it didn't. I'm glad that it sort of teetered back into the world of thriller horror because you either have to go that extreme or you have to stay pretty tight. And so when you look at it from that perspective... AJ's motives and AJ's actions are very consistent with his character. So would he have reservations going down to the basement if he's that desperate? If all he's been thinking about is how do I get out of this? How do I clear my name? How do I find the money? I mean, I would imagine that you're going to do anything and you're not thinking about the horror tropes of the horror movies that you've seen in the past and like, don't go down there. So when we get to that point, there's a sense of like a morality that we see in him where he doesn't care. And it's only when he gets, when he discovers Tess and he's thrown into that that cage, that things sort of align themselves back. Like, oh, this is serious. So it's not quite funny. It's funny to see, but it's not unrealistic based off of his character that we've been introduced to.
1: Yeah, I think it, he doesn't stop thinking about his own, Outside peril until that right. moment, and he's like, "Oh, <laughs> maybe now I need to survive first. <laughs> there, there might be something else going on here." Yeah, and there's another scene. I actually was reading an interview today with the, the actress who played Tess about how she said the most disgusting scene to film in the movie was the bottle coming down for them oh, to gosh. drink. She Ooh, said they would do the it. Yeah. Well, so that's that was what she was talking about. She said. They did this scene over and over and, you know, Zach would say, get a little, you know, slap it around, get it, like, make the, make the milk, like, come out of your mouth and like go all over the place when you're drink drink it violently. And like, they do all these weird takes. And then on one of them, they, the, because the mom, mother, mother, mama, whatever character had so much like straggly hair all over her body. There was a hair on it and he was like oh my gosh that's more hair put more hair on the bottle put more hair on the bottle and so they had to like continue going through it and she she, her last part of her quote in this interview was the things we do for art which i thought was nice but yeah yeah just it's grosser to me than the two kills which was you know shocking but i was like "Uh -uh, mm uh-uh but and i think that is really interesting because again you have he shows up in this dungeon. He is trying to process. He has no idea what is happening. He is completely overwhelmed in this moment. And she immediately is like, I'm here to drink the bottle, right? Like, would you drink the bottle? Because this random person in this cage told you to drink the bottle. I don't know that I would drink the bottle. She doesn't give him any more information. That's the thing. Yeah. There's so much trust in all of the different situations these characters find themselves in. Okay. It's not like she says drink the bottle it's milk it's not going to kill you she just wants you to pretend to be the ba- like she kind of gets there in the end but he's already resisting at this point point. and yeah i mean he's so he's
0: it, in a he's in a he's in a traumatic shock state exactly and he's, just been, he's just been taken down and the next thing he sees he's in a cage and this this woman who by the way was played by a man uh, just letting you know it was played by matthew patrick davis is his name i was like what really But I guess that makes sense. Pretty big and
1: tall and yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah, I guess that makes sense. But I I mean, I'm kind of siding with him because I don't know this girl. I mean, she looks paranoid. She looks strung out. She looks like she hasn't eaten or been around people. She looks like she's on the verge of beginning to transform into this other person with a shirt on. Uh, But you – so yes, I would would justifiably act like he does because at some point he – he's being challenged to lose his agency. So when she says, just drink the drink the bottle, she just she wants you to be uh her baby. No, no. I still have my conscience here. I still know what I'm doing. I'm gonna get out of here. And so I, I would feel that kind of pressure. I couldn't trust this woman because or either one of them, obviously, because I don't know them. I mean, for all I know, nobody's been living here, except for squatters. And if this is what squatters do, then I need to pick a different kind of a uh, side hustle than, you know, real estate. So yeah,
1: <laughs> absolutely. Well, we get another jump cut here and we get this really brief third section of the film. that's a flashback. This old man stalking a victim, stocking up on baby supplies. I want to point out, I really enjoyed the filmmaking style here as well. From when he gets into his car, and his driving it's very video gamey for a long per like we follow behind yeah. him and this third person over the shoulder view through the the, the aisles of the drugstore and such and i just I, I had a very survival horror reminiscent experience with that kind of style i thought that was a really cool choice also to just mix it up yeah i like the he yeah. mess with the different camera ways of shooting but how long did it take before you kind of realized what was going on in this section and why we were seeing this? Um, I think it was at the moment
0: when he puts the jumpsuit on, goes to the woman's house and unlocks
1: her window. Carlos. <laughs> yeah, we noted Carlos. this time his name is Carlos. And <laughs>
0: yes. And his neighbor calls him Frank and doesn't even notice the fact that why are you wearing a jumpsuit? This says Carlos. Uh, uh-huh. um, I thought this section was really kind of depicted in a surreal way with the houses, um, especially with the sense that every house was perfect, almost like a model home. The grass was clearly – it felt a lot like the Truman Show where those houses were – they looked like a set. They looked like actual – like you built them for a set, very colorful. And it was somewhat of a comedic moment when his neighbor said, hey, next week you're going to see a sun in our yard. Yep, the wife and I are moving the neighborhood seems to be getting pretty bad and you're looking around at like all these beautiful houses like what's going on what's so bad about this neighborhood at this point of course we know and i think that's what told me okay we're in the past so noticing his house i was putting those two pieces together but it wasn't until he got he left the the grocery store or whatever it was and went to that woman's home to do his thing that i was like okay so i don't know where mama fits in but i know that now I think at this point, uh, we haven't had the conversation with the old man at the water tower who says, she's not the worst person (laughs) in the house. I was just like, okay, is, is he the worst person at this point? Because we don't know what happens to him. We know that he goes and he unlocks the window and then it cuts back to the present. So what I picked up on it in my dense brain was that it was in the past and that that was his house and that at some point... Uh, This baby metaphor with the videotape and everything kind of made its way into the basement uh, torture room, whatever we call this place, the tombs, and maybe they've been living there for a number of years in solitude.
1: Yeah, I really liked how we got information distributed in these different ways throughout the movie, just like how we got the information of AJ's backstory with the allegations and his history and not all the characters have that information we get this backstory of the old man having obviously kidnapped this woman i mean that's what i pulled that he was going to he was kidnapping that woman later that night he's going to be trying to have a baby with them force them to be some sort of a mom so we knew kind of knew that much and then We get to see AJ interact with him when he discovers him in that room. And AJ doesn't know that. And so it makes the script work so just sweet to me because when he discovers the man, he's talking to him, he's like, oh my God, I got to call the cops. Don't worry. I'll tell them all about everything. We got to tell them about this place and what's going on and get you out of here. That's when the old man goes for the gun. And I think it's fun because AJ as a character is going, oh my God, he's going to shoot me. But as an audience, when the old man pulls the gun and points it at his head, I think you immediately realize, oh, well, of course, because he doesn't want this guy to call the cops and like, like he, he realizes this could be it and somebody could come and we're in trouble. You know, like I might as well just be done. And so it's a a non-understanding. They're not coming. They don't have the same pieces of the puzzle that far until AJ watches this video. And then he realizes, oh my God, you are essentially this serial murderer. And, and then we get to start to play with the concept of AJ judging someone for essentially Mm -hmm. being a rapist. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> when he can't even admit that he is one himself.
0: Yeah. There's this I mean, I I love the I love the thematics and the the metaphors of levels. There's a level of honesty, levels of perception, and he obviously depicts this idea that there will always be somebody better than you perceptively. There's always going to be somebody worse than you perceptively. And as human beings, we tend to lean into Any comparison we make is going to be towards someone who is worse off. Oh, yeah, well, I may be a rapist, but at least I don't bring women into this basement and videotape them while I do whatever. And that's the other thing that I found interesting, Aaron, is that we don't know, we hear, but we don't know exactly what happens. I I believe he kills. But what we find out from that backstory from the old man is that it wasn't just repeated serial killing, it was this opportunity to have a baby, and then that baby grows up to be a mother and who has a baby, and that mama is a product of this, which is just sick in the head. And so, is it gross? Absolutely it is. But coming from the man who is constantly denying the fact that he's the victim here, that he didn't do a thing, except when he confesses to his friend, he actually did all that stuff, and it's terrible. It's very interesting to see that there's always going to be some kind of deviation human, humanistically of, well, at least I'm not like this guy. At least I'm not worse off. And so therefore I Mm -hmm. should get, I should get a lesser punishment. I should be seen as a better guy. Maybe not the nicest guy, but a better guy. When in actuality, rape is rape, whether it's consensual or not. Rape is rape. It's defined. It's forced on a woman. And you can't get away from that. The law says this is what it is. And in the minds of the people, the same thing with like, child uh child abuse this idea of sexual uh, child sexual whatever sexual predators when they go to jail they are isolated you know why because there are murderers and robbers and drug dealers and all these people in prison but they all have one common enemy and you know what that is sexual predators sexual predators get it doesn't matter if you are perceived as a sexual predator if you're convicted those folks in prison are not going to see you any other way and i think that there's a sense of morality that we all live with And it's a sliding scale. Unfortunately, there's not a justifiable like, yep, everybody who does this should get this punishment because there's going to be a circumstance. And I think AJ represents that sort of sliding scale of at least I'm not like that guy, even though I did that. And even that I'm justifying is, oh yeah, it wasn't really that bad. When in actuality, you're about as bad as this dude. You just didn't stab a girl.
1: (laughs) And I think he knows it. And I I believe that that's kind of Craig's intent is giving us a character who is a celebrity being accused of these things is not new. Like this is happens quite a bit. <laughs> it feels like in the last decade or less half a decade or so we've seen this happen. And I, I love the tellingness of the monologue or not the monologue, but the the dialogue that AJ has when they get to the water tower later, because, you know, he basically is admitting it, but just is afraid to own it. He says, I don't know if I'm a bad person. I mean, I might be. I'm a good person. I just did a bad thing. I can't change what I've done. I can just try and fix it. He goes through like levels in this one brief moment where I think he knows, right? And we'll talk about, I mean, it becomes pretty sealed (laughs) after this, (laughs) what he is. But I think it's indicative of the way that a a person who maybe does these acts isn't doing them with the full knowledge. He's not like this old man; like he isn't probably preying on people, but he is taking advantage of a situation. And like you said, he's there's a le- he sees that as a level below, and then it, there's a a ability to justify that. Which he's trying to do, and he's trying to reconcile justifying it with that that deeper morality within him that knows that yeah. he did something wrong. And it's yeah. it's a conflict.
0: It is. And I think it's really brilliant how the the way the movie is set up, there's such a great visual metaphor with this house that is like a whitewashed tomb, as like the Bible would say. the The Pharisees are on the outside; you look great, but on the inside, you're all kinds of messed up. And look at the house. The house looks good compared compared to the houses around it, even though it's in a crap neighborhood. And then inside the house, it's cute, according to Tess, like she describes it to um, I don't remember who it was. Bonnie, the interviewer, who says you need to get out of that neighborhood. And I'm like, yes, you need to get out of the neighborhood, go. (laughs) But as you get lower into the house, there are these layers of dirty, these layers of gross and ugliness that start to shine. The basement looks not so good when compared to the upper parts of the house. Then as you go deeper into the basement, now you've got this room with a camera and a bucket and a bed. And I also love the dialogue here between. Between Tess and Keith, because Keith is, Keith is basically just sort of, it, it it's a camera and a bucket and a bed. That's what you you have those things in the basement. But and she's like, she's trying to convince him, and I'm like, explain to him what the camera is set up looking at this bed with the bucket next to it. It looks like a prison. And eventually, I think and she a got bloody an
1: handprint on the wall. Hello, and a bloody that's handprint. not normal. <laughs>
0: yeah, which I by the way, I thought the handprint sort of appeared. By the way, I was just again, my brain was like. Was that not there a second ago? Merging horror movies. <laughs> exactly. But then you go down into the tunnels and you see cages that you assume are for animals because there are dog bowls when in actuality, knowing what we know now, it's probably for victims. And then you keep going deeper and you see mama who is pretty gross, but she's not the worst part of it. Morally speaking, then you go deeper and you get to the root of that. And I think that it's such a fantastic visual metaphor of maybe how humans are, where we might look great, the celebrity that we want to just fall in love with, the Tom Hanks is out there, the whoever's. And when we find out they've done something wrong, it like breaks our heart. You know, we we want to believe that the guys that play the nice guys on television in movies that's really how they are in real life. When in actuality, celebrities are human beings just like we are, and they mess up. And sometimes they're not not—they're not forgiving. They have no forgiveness in their heart about what they did. I think AJ believes that he did a bad thing. And that may be true, but he's tried, convicted, and sentenced based off of public opinion. I, I was thinking about, as you were talking, the dad who is um, Frank. At one point, Frank was not like that. At one point, Frank... Was not born wanting to stalk women and kill them. So whatever his intent was, we're not given that backstory. We're given a a point in his life where we're like, "Yep, you're definitely the bad guy." But at the same time, seeing AJ's argument, even though he turns out to be the biggest douche ever in this entire movie, like he actually looks worse than Frank in terms of what he's doing. Some way, I I think about the fact that at some point AJ. Did a bad thing. And he, he is a good guy. Maybe he is, but he made a bad choice. Unfortunately, the movie shows that he does have his true colors and they, they come out. But I do think that it asks the question, how deeply should we explore someone's morality? How deeply should we believe someone? Do we believe the surface level? I don't think so. I think we're all fake on the outside. You know, psychologists would tell us and studies would tell us that we have our fake person on the outside, and it's only when we get in deeper levels that we really find our true self. It may not be in contradiction to our fake self and who we receive, but I think that that's what this movie's doing. Is it's showing us that there are layers to people, just like there's layers to this house, and whether they're more evil as you get deeper. I think there's more reality. There's more of a realness to who they are as you get deeper into their soul. So, you know, take that philosophically for what it is, but I think that's kind of what's happening here in terms of the. Uh, the filmmaking itself, the actual set design—there's real care taken with the way that this whole house was set
1: up. Yeah, it's a phenomenal metaphor observation from you. I I love it. I had not even considered that before you started bringing it up, and it is absolutely perfect. Before we talk about the ending, ending, I wanted to, to one more sequence in the film, and that is when Tess escapes and she goes to find help, and she comes. Upon these cops, she calls the cops from Detroit. What did you take away from this sequence? Because she is not getting a lot of help from these law enforcement officers.
0: Well, I think she looks like Detroit badness or Detroit gross or Detroit dirtiness. <laughs> you know, She's all messed up. She doesn't have ID. And there's a pessimism to law enforcement that I was reading reviews and one of the reviews said, this is a horror movie. It's a day in the life in Detroit. And I don't know, I have no idea uh, what it's like to live in Detroit or, or a major metropolitan city like that. But, um, I don't have that kind of perspective. Uh, it saddens me that police officers can't have a level of trust that they prioritize what they're hearing on their, on their monitors or whatever. But I think it's sort of consistent with, the rest of what's happening in the movie where this is sort of a little not tropey but a little bit of a plot hole that all the hotels just happened to be booked up in a major metro area because of this big giant
1: convention and i mean were they that's a that's an interesting point so okay i remember very vividly when she is talking to the interviewer and she's like why are you there you need to go somewhere she's like no there's a major convention all the hotels are booked up She tries one hotel. She called one hotel. She finds out it's packed. And he says, oh, yeah, all there. Because that's one of the, the first informations when we're like, is he lying? Is he making this stuff up? So maybe they are. But like she doesn't know that she there's nothing in the movie of her going through this sequence. And again, it's like it goes back to that whole thing of trust. Right. Which is what we have here. The cops don't trust her. They have no reason to. She's not presenting a person that would be worthy of trust on the surface. To the the cops, my initial
0: thought was why are you not helping her? But it's consistent with a lot of the trust and mistrust based off of perceptions. You know, here's a woman who doesn't look like she's got herself together. She doesn't look normal or part of, I guess, normal society at this point. And so unfortunately the cops being human beings, they're gonna make their own perceptions and draw their own conclusions
1: and that's what we get yes and it is very sad to see her one opportunity to have help and she then makes the choice to go back in she breaks a window she enters the dangerous scary place to go save the guy who she doesn't know from the creature and this is where I think most people are as an audience thrown for that loop because we don't naturally want to root for AJ to get out because we know what he did. And so I think it's, it's easy for us to be okay with him being stuck there if it means that Tess gets away. Because we have been shown Tess as nothing in this situation, but someone worthy of life, right? Whereas AJ, if we're given the choice, we feel like somebody's got to go, like, don't take her down with you. Did you wrestle with this at all? And did you think that Tess was being unreasonably moral in her approach to go and try and save him? Well, I think where I struggled was the fact that I
0: was never given any indication as as I'm thinking through this. Initially, I was like, thinking, there's no reason for you to go back for this guy. At the same time, she knows nothing about him, just like she knew nothing about Keith. And if Keith, looking like he did, was the nice guy for her, then I think she sort of wanted to justify or redeem herself by being able to rescue him because she didn't know that he was a rapist. She didn't know that he had this backstory. She's not been reading the newspapers or scrolling through Twitter while she's getting milk from mama. So I think for her, those two weeks that she was in that prison all she knew, all she remembered was that her friend that she thought could have been a potential bad guy was killed. So anybody else that comes down here, if they're not rescuing her, she needs to rescue them. And that's that's kind of what, where I landed, was that not that she saw him as a good guy, but that she didn't know. Now, had she known his history, I think that would have brought some questionable stuff in there, I think if she had become a new victim knowing that, oh, yeah, you're that guy, I think it would have created an interesting plot point. Like, hmm, what do you do based off of the information that you have not knowing a guy fully but perceptively being considered a rapist? Do you rescue him? And I think that's that question's asked, but it's asked in a better way because she doesn't have that foreknowledge, which is really what makes it cool because now you've got almost a pure you, – you make her moral – when in actuality, she'd probably make the decision that we make, which is leave the dude there. He deserves it. Go. Take your car and get out of Detroit and let mama deal with him. But unfortunately for us, she doesn't. And I think it's just because of a lack of information. Not that you know, we don't know what choice she'd make if she had that information, but I think it's because she doesn't have that. And the only kind of you know foundation she has, the only baseline is Keith. That's why I think she went back for him.
1: I think she might have gone back for him anyway. I think that she is a very careful person, generally speaking. But I see her throughout the movie as someone who is also very caring about others. And when push comes to shove, she's careful and she's... Wants to have all the information at her disposal, but she also doesn't want to kick the other guy out. Like She doesn't want him to be suffering just because it's better for her. And I think she is an example of someone who is willing to put themselves on the line at numerous occasions just to help ensure that other people... Are okay. I mean, she could have not told him about the bottle when she first met him and let him be her means of escape. I think in a lot of horror movies, that would be the horror movie, right? Would be self preservation and survival of the fittest. And so who cares if this other person is sacrificed if it gives you an opportunity to get away? Whereas this shows us kind of the opposite. But I love that the movie does this because it gives us a reason, again. Less so to me to think about what they would do, but really to look in the mirror and think about what would I do if I had the information or what would I do now, if the, I didn't and it was a stranger?
0: Yeah. Now, when you say information, do you mean the backstory on
1: him? On yes. JJ? When I say information, okay. I'm talking about the fact that he, like, if I knew if it was just a stranger that I, which is what he is to her, or right. if she say recognized him because she had read the Hollywood reporter piece the day before all this happened and she knew that he was an actor, whatever he is. And he is accused of sexual assault. Like, would she have then viewed him differently because she has more than just one interaction with him? She is operating purely based on humanity and morality. Like there's no judgment there of are you good? Are you bad? Are you worthy? Are you not worthy? It's you're human and you're alive. Therefore, you are worthy of not dying to this thing. Well, and I and think, I that's think pretty that cool. raises
0: it. Yeah, I think it is too. And I think it raises the question as human beings, can we filter that? Can we filter the ability to judge a person or to see a person purely in the fact that you are a human, you are alive. I don't think we can, because the fact is we have laws both moral and actual like written laws that create punishment for a crime committed at the same time if she had had that information about him does this punishment fit the crime does he need to be eaten alive and have his head you know popped out and his brains whatever whatever happens to him because he was a rapist i mean i think emotionally absolutely i mean you don't anybody that you hate that much you could probably find, you know, whatever the worst punishment is, make it one time worse than that. And that's justifiable. You know, don't send him to jail, send him to hell, you know, that kind of thing. I think that what the movie does well is it, as it says, in a pure environment, a person's worth rescuing if you had no facts about them, because we're all human and we're all alive. That's the truth. That's the thing that every person in the world has in common, whether you're you know, Jewish, Christian, black, white, at our core, we are those two things. The challenge, though, is that for better or for worse, we have layers of us on top of that. <laughs> and those layers could be created because of choices we've made, public and private. They could have made promises we've broken, laws we've broken, uh, moral choices that were wrong. And what that does is that forces the people around us, judiciously, morally, however, to cast some kind of judgment and some kind of punishment on us. Is it justified or not? That's where the complexity comes in. I don't think she's the judge or jury for him. I think a judge, an actual judge and an actual jury should be that. And so I think that for her, that purity that you mentioned comes from naivety i don't think i I don't see i hadn't and i don't disagree with you completely i just didn't see anything leading up to that point that saw her as a good person i mean i thought she's nice and she's wanting to get her career off the ground but even at the beginning she's got this she's got this phone call that comes two or three times from a dude very good point that she's like leave me alone maybe she has a bad breakup maybe she did something wrong maybe she murdered him if she murdered him, he well, no, be I guess he wouldn't her. be
1: calling if, if, yeah, she, no. <laughs> come on, let's But not you're right, we case. don't know anything <laughs> other than the situation. We're judging her again, like you had brought up earlier, it's all relative to him because he's the other person we know. So, you, because we don't know anything about her, she is immediately easier to relate to and right good versus his bad. And because of her choices, I think we do know that she has this natural morality of like wanting to take she goes twice into the dungeon to try and help dudes so that she yes. doesn't really know. So right. the movie ends with her and Keith or her, not her and Keith, sadly her and AJ going to the water tower. They learn what you mentioned earlier about the history that this is sort of an inbreeding situation that has resulted in this creature. There's the great jump scare of the guy saying, don't worry, <laughs> she's never come here. And then, Fam, this like incredibly powerfully strong thing apparently bursts through the wall, the rock wall, grabs him, rips his arm off, and beats him to death with it. Which is (laughs) just—it's not gory because it's all like he's off screen. The body is, but it's just—it's. I just—it was this mixture of funny and awesome to me. Just watching this visual was just like, what is going on? (laughs) There are,
0: I think, very much a few Tarantino moments here of just lingering on the moment, and I think the uh, Keith's kill and AJ's kill are two of those. I mean, not not that terribly long, I and mean, they're long enough, but they're 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 hinting at a Tarantino length kill. This one, the the one with the arm, was like, okay, you've killed him. I think he's dead. <laughs> you can stop hitting him with his own arm, and I'm glad that it. I mean, it didn't show anything, but, you know, I'm like, enough is enough. You know, you've given him a hand and also an arm at this point. So stop doing that. And and then we move forward.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And they, they go up in this water tower, which this is one of the one moments in the movie where you're like, no, that's the horror movie thing to do. Why would you go up? Like, I know that they can't run. So there is at least a normal like plot element to why they can't just run down the street and get away from it. But they go up to this water tower and Keith, after just giving that little dialogue that I talked about, about how I can't change what I've done. I can just try and fix it. Decides that the way to self preserve himself is to throw Tess off of the water tower. (laughs) So that the monster, and this is the moment where, this is one of the moments where when you're watching it with people who've never seen it before and you have, it's a joy. Because I just turned. I didn't even watch the monster. I just looked at them and their faces. And you get to see the same thing that we did when we had it the first time, right? And you're just, your jaw, with the shot of her jumping off the tower with her arms wide open to go do the catch and the barrel roll, it's glorious. It is so stupid. And just so awesome. <laughs> and it's great. And and the whole Saggy boob's just fine. It's just so great. And the way it ends with her catching him and him coming down. And this is another, like, even when he gets there, he gets he tries to help Tess up. He's like, Oh good, you're okay. And he tries to gaslight her. He says, You started to slip, and there was nothing I could do. It's so and, terrible. And then we get the kind of I think moment we've all been wanting, which is we get his death in a very gross, gory eyes popped out with the thumbs and then skull literally ripped open into two halves. Oh, I don't even, it's disgusting. Did you have sympathy? I I, not for AJ. I don't think there's even a question. I don't think anybody had sympathy for AJ. Did you have sympathy for the monster when she shot the monster or did you kind of wish she wouldn't Or, or, or were you, you know, how did you, feel about that.
0: There was a moment where I think if I'd had more than just mama come out of her mouth, I would have more sympathy because she never felt like more than that. And I know that we had the backstory, but it wasn't enough to get me to justify her death. The fact is, I go back to what Tess said to AJ. All she wanted was for someone to be her mother. Otherwise, she's freaking out. And the fact that she's incredibly strong, that she can survive a fall like that, tells me that she's doing more harm than good in the world and that she needs to be taken out. It's a mercy kill. I don't think it's a murder. I think it's a mercy kill because the fact that she's never going to be normal, she's not going to be rehabilitated in any way, shape or form. There's no way that a populace of people will look at her and be like, you know what? Let's give her a chance let's put some clothes on her and let's try to make this happen. No, she's lived too long of a life in a different kind of world that, again, to go back to what we just talked about, I don't think she's human. That's what I think is a separator. If we knew nothing else about her, and this is the this is the thing, Tess knows as much about her as she does about AJ, but she's learned more about AJ based off of his actions. All she knows about Mama is that she just wants to be a mother, but I don't think she's human. I don't see, I don't think Tess sees her that way. And so to me, that's a mercy kill.
1: I would agree. A hundred percent. Based on the the shot we get of her face, the one look we get from Tess, I think it's pretty clear. And, and we get like a moment of sadness from the mom, who this whole time she really is. She never was the monster. She was created into this thing all she is doing is acting on her instincts and what she has been created by this awful human which is what the guy at the water tower is telling them like he's the real monster she is the victim in a lot of ways because she just is trying to have her baby because that is what she was made to be
0: was something
1: that that's all that she can identify with if that's taken away from her, then there's nothing. And so she's kind of projected that now onto Tess because she had her for a couple of weeks. And she probably didn't have somebody for a long time. And it's sad. And like you said, Mercy Kill, I think, is is the perfect way to put it. And I also just have to give them the movie props because I think this is absolutely an A plus example and one of the best I've had in recent years of an in-credit song matching the film. Did you take note of what it was? I snickered I mean, you made when it happened. I was like, Yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> and you're singing Be just, my Be My Baby. Be my baby
0: <laughs> <laughs> While she's walking all like disheveled oh, through the streets. Yeah, it was I mean, it was fitting, I think, for not for the tone of the movie, but a nice little light exclamation point of just saying, Yeah, that's that's kinda what we were going for And uh the credits just, you know, popping back and forth with her moving forward I agree well that's all I got and that's all I got and that'll do it for us on this edition of Phelan's Film hope you've enjoyed the conversation like we have next week we're hitting the theaters we're going back to paradise with George Clooney and Julia Roberts a fun little rom-com it's getting a lot of love I know my wife and I are excited to see it and excited to talk about it too so Aaron thanks for another great conversation we'll talk
1: soon hey everyone thanks again for listening if you enjoy the show we'd love to hear from you